This is the Berg's Eye View Podcast. I'm John David Bennett, Mercersburg Academy's Dean of Curricular Innovation. For the 2020-21 school year, Mercersburg has chosen Make a Difference as the year-long theme. So each month on the podcast, we interview a graduate who, whether professionally or charitably, is having a profound impact on the lives of people in need. In this episode, I talked to Carla Lopez, class of 1997. As the Innovation Lead for Health for the International Rescue Committee, she is, in her words, a global practitioner working on the stubborn issues that keep poor people in poverty. In the conversation, she tells us about the work she's currently doing, about the lasting influence of her Mercersburg teachers, and about the nuanced approach necessary for successful humanitarian work. Um, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Carla, welcome to the podcast. What projects are you currently working on? What sort of projects? Well, so my focus is on health um, and that uh, spans everything from severe malnutrition prevention amongst uh, kids under the age of five to access to sexual reproductive health services for women and girls. Um, And really trying to think about those issues in a pretty holistic way. So, um, you know, I ran a prototype in Niger last year um, that was loosely around malnutrition, but what we were really trying to understand is how can we ensure the subsistence farming families Um, don't lose uh, the crops that they are able to farm to things like vermin and insects and mold? How do we make sure that the post-harvest crop that they actually manage to produce um, is uh, maintained so that they can both feed their families, um, but also if they have a bumper crop, be able to sell some of that excess crop and for some cash. So, you know, the way that we conduct interventions is not static. Um, it spans uh, the entire ecosystem of the problem. Um, something else I'm working on right now, um, we're working on a research project in South Sudan uh, to try to make injectable contraceptives more readily available to women and girls. So there's this an amazing product called Cyana Press, which is a self-injectable, So rather than going to traveling all the way to a clinic to get a Depo-Provera injectable contraceptive, which is protective for about three months, um, there is a shelf-stable self-injection. It's not a syringe with a scary long needle um, and a vial of medication. It's an all-in-one innovation. It's called uh, Unijet. And you can give yourself an injection Uh, of this contraceptive that, again, is protective for three months. So we're trying to figure out how to deliver that product in a way that women and girls can access in a confidential way, in a way that gives them confidence that they know how to use it, um, that makes them feel powerful, um, and really shifts the power into their hands and takes the burden off of health facilities to deliver that kind of service. I'm always fascinated by the stories people tell about how they came to Murchisburg. How did you end up at the Academy? Um, Well, so both my parents went to boarding school when they were very young. um, And I grew up hearing stories about boarding school, but uh, my parents were not terribly keen to send me to boarding school. I think they had a typical, like, uh, went to school 
in elementary school to and you know had pretty tough treatment from a bunch of Irish nuns um, and so that was their boarding school experience um, but when I was about 16 uh, my parents were moving to Borneo for for my dad's work uh, and Borneo just didn't have schools in the American system um, for me so uh, I decided that boarding school was what I wanted to do um, and Mercersburg had some really great classes that I was interested in Mr. Gift was teaching a uh, class in mammalogy and vertebrate zoology, and I made a <laughs> I made a deal <laughs> uh, with the school that um, because I speak Portuguese, uh, I would not have to fulfill my language credits so that I could take those classes. I lived in Culbertson, and the Weinbrenners um, lived there, and. Wow, Mr. and Mrs. Weinbrenner were really amazing role models in in kindness and in just what it means to to create your own family and to be really accepting of people around you and um, just what it means to sort of create trust and friendship. I mean, I they were incredibly kind and generous humans, and I have to say that. With every passing year, I think more and more about Mrs. Wooten's AP English class because she was probably one of the toughest teachers I ever had. And I always thought school was, I always thought it was pretty good at school until I got to her class and had to work really hard. And I know it sounds silly, but at the time I remember writing essays and like, you know, once I hit upon like, okay, this is the story I want to tell, I would just write everything down and then couldn't wait to be done with it. And something as simple as proofreading was never something I did. And wow, uh, you would really be in trouble if you submitted a paper to her without proofing it. Um, and I think about her every time I write and send an email that matters. I, I really like, she has influenced my, my writing uh, so much. I'm not sure she will ever know how much. Yeah, I was hired the year after she retired, and I remember ah. looking at me like, uh, "Let's see what you got." <laughs> <laughs> She's incredibly hard act to follow. Yeah, I can imagine. Very intimidating, I'm sure. Uh, what did you learn while at the academy that has stayed with you? You know, well. Um, I had never spent so many time, so much time with American teenagers before in my life. So that was um, definitely, you know, the combined experience of uh, adapting myself to American culture while also being surrounded by, you know, kids all going through this awkward adolescent phase all at once and wearing all of their anxieties on their sleeves. And, um, you know, it was it was pretty full on. And I think, you know, the kinds of friendships that you build at Mercersburg from having that kind of intense uh, exposure to other people going through similar things that you're going through um, made me realize that uh, a measure of my life's success are, are the friendships that I've made and have kept. And, you know, I, have moved to many, many different countries and have had to say goodbye to friends so many times in my life. And 
one of the things I'm most proud of is that I put a lot of effort into maintaining those friendships because I, I learned during my time at Mercersburg how important they were, how much I learned as a person because of those friendships. I, I honestly think that school is just, it's just a structure um, for making strong friendships and learning more about yourself and the world through, through those friendships. So when you're faced with the complexities and the work that you do, what are some of the most daunting tasks ahead? And what fills you with hope? Oh, complexities. Um, yeah, a lot of the problems that we face are very old entrenched problems. So for example, um, I'm about to run a design sprint starting tomorrow um, to figure out how to uh, provide better access to adolescent girls to contraception. And these are girls who are South Sudanese, who were displaced, fled across the border um, to Uganda. Uh, their families were you know, pursued by militia, had very difficult circumstances in their lives, and now live as displaced communities in Uganda, not even communities, groups of people. It could hardly call them a community. Um, these are really tough conditions, but of course, girls everywhere face very similar barriers to accessing contraception. There's a lot of stigma, there's a lot of self-doubt, misinformation. Um, so, you know, it can be really daunting to try to think like, okay, well, how am I going to crack this problem when, you know, many, many people before me um, have thought about this and many others in the world right now are also struggling with this. And there are many, beliefs that are hard to change, that are entrenched, that come from culture and religion and experience that are hard to shift. Um, but the thing that gives me hope is that I think if, I think that there are so many examples in the world of successes that we have had that have been somewhat unexpected. And it's easy to point to digital ones, right? It's easy to point to the fact that uh, the device that I call my phone is not really primarily a phone. It's a mini computer in my hand. And I actually have to swipe a few screens to get to the phone function. But that's something that's happened, you know, it, in my adult years. Um, but I think that there are, there are other shifts that are not technological that are also encouraging. So things like the proportion of girls who are able to go to school now is much higher than it was when I was in school. And those, the barriers to girls going to school are some of those entrenched, really difficult things to shift, beliefs, expectations, cultural norms. So I think that there are enough successes out there in the world and enough people willing to put their lifeblood, sweat, and tears into cracking this problem to, to, to have at it. And it's really difficult, but it's, it'll be worth it if we make at least a few steps in the right direction. You know, I'm, I'm sure that there are things that you see and do each day that that uh, that someone outside of your profession may not be aware is happening or 
that you deal with or that you're trying to find solutions to or whatever it might be? If, if we see a problem out there in the world um, and our first instinct is to say, well, why don't we do X? Um, chances are there's a good reason why X hasn't worked, right? And that problem is deserving of the time and effort to understand why that's the case. And so it's hard not to connect this back to the current political situation in the country, but um, I, th I think the conversation that we had before around service and how to align our desire to be of service um, with ensuring that our efforts are, are um, not, that our efforts are being put in the, in the right place is something of interest to me. So for example, um, I remember being a judge for a school competition for young innovators, and these were fifth graders. And one team was really interested in addressing HIV issues in, quote, Africa. Um, and their solution that they came up with was to uh, create flyers and t-shirts um, telling people about HIV and distributing them to, quote, Africa. Now, these are fifth graders, and um, I understand that, you know, they feel passionate about this and they want other people to, too. But I think it's a really, uh, it's a really clear way of seeing how, you know, your, a lack of understanding of an issue might lead you in the completely wrong direction. And it's really hard if you're not really well versed in how work is done in the humanitarian and development sector to know where to how to understand the problems so when new people come into your in, into the kind of work that you do uh, what do you have to train out of them what do you have to help them understand and see um so the first thing is often you people come from rich countries with very little experience in the places that they want to help. And so I think the first thing for them to understand is um, how, to, how to be naive. So I'll give you an example. Um, I had a boss who was from the UK. Um, he, he, his family was actually had a wonderful refugee story. Um, and we were talking about the importance of breastfeeding and how important breast milk is for young children and the sordid history of formula. So um, Nestle in decades ago really pushed formula on poor countries around the world. Um, and that's really problematic because to make formula, you need to mix it with water. And um, in many parts of the world, there is no clean water, there's no potable water. Water can lead to diarrheal disease, which can be really dangerous amongst young children, especially newborns. So pushing formula on poor people is a huge risk to the health and well-being of children. And this boss asked me, you know, he he was like, Well, why don't we why don't we promote formula? You know, breastfeeding can be so challenging. And I was like, Well, that requires water. And he was like, so why don't we just give people water? And, and that to me, just 
demonstrated such a huge disconnect between his lived experience and the lived experience of people for whom water is a really difficult thing to get. Like you have to walk a long, long way in some cases to get water. So even things like during the Ebola outbreak, when we tell people like, wash your hands with soap and water all the time. Well, there are places with no water. Water is a rare thing. Mm -hmm. And if you can get your hands on it, you're going to drink it. You're not going to waste it by washing your hands. So I feel like, you know, coming into a problem, fully understanding the depths of your naivete is easier said than done. And it takes practice to have that mindset and to not feel like being naive, like owning your identity in being naive is the same thing as being ignorant. It's not the same thing. You know, in the, in the, in the current transition and how classrooms are working with the, with the students becoming more of the center and the, and uh, the teachers are more guides as, as opposed to teachers. You know, we, we often see educators who are afraid of that naivete. Um, if, uh, going into a project in which the, the teacher doesn't know what the outcomes are going to be. Yes. And the research is clear that um, having that sort, of, that sort of experience with the kids, even in sort of an apprenticeship way as opposed to, a, as a, as opposed to being a teacher, uh, where you are discovering as they discover. For, for example, this, uh, this term, I've not pre-read any of the books that the students are reading. And oh, I've, let interesting. Them I've let them know that. Which, once they get comfortable with that idea, they realize that the playing field is completely leveled. Yeah. And they can push back. Or as we're reading Shakespeare, and they see that I'm struggling with it, they don't think they are unintelligent or unsophisticated right. because they don't get it. But you know, I, I don't know if, if if there's a parallel here with with the experience that you see when those who come in and they want to impose their what they probably believe is wisdom and insight when it doesn't it isn't going to connect, which I assume would result in resistance from the people that you're trying to help. So let me ask that question. Yes, and actually the resistance does not come from uh, the, the people I try to serve. So the people I try to serve are some of the most vulnerable in the world. And honestly, any kind of help they get, whether it's good quality or wretched quality, is welcome because they don't have much of a choice in the matter. They don't have you know, a grocery store full of um, options for them to pick from. So they are not very discerning in the kind of help they receive because they can't afford to be. But the resistance often comes from uh, colleagues or, or people like me who are in the humanitarian sector who are technical experts in one area or another. So for example, a lot of the innovation work I do in health is on you know, latrines or for subsistence farmers or any number of topics that I'm not an expert in. And so when I come in with my little innov cute innovation hat saying like, ooh, look at me, I'm all shiny and I've got like all this hidden sparkly stuff, um, that immediately gets a reaction from people who are like, what are you doing here? You're not the one who knows the most about this topic. And what I have learned to do is at the start of this collaboration to say, hey, you're the technical expert on digging latrines in humanitarian camps what do I need to know the most? Tell me the three things I most need to understand about this condition, these circumstances, 
What are the three journal articles I need to read? Who are the main experts whose work I need to understand? And that does two things. One, it recognizes the fact that I am not putting myself in the expert category. It allows them to shape my learning on the subject and direct me to the areas that are most important to them. And it shows that I am willing to learn. I'm willing to do the work to get up to speed, to meet their expectations, and to make myself a valuable collaborator. And then that means that, you know, my little innovation sparkly bits and bobs uh, have a, a softer landing when it comes time to actually venture into an area that they're less familiar with. Do you feel like that approach is common practice in what you do? I don't know. Um, it's something I try to talk about a lot to my colleagues because I feel like it was a hard-won lesson. I had a lot of failures before I hit upon this as a successful approach. And so I like to talk about it a lot in case it helps other people. But I suspect it's not, it's not as common as it could or should be. You know, a, a lot of things about uh, the global health world that I've observed is people um, are very well-intentioned and passionate about their work, but the way that people signal or demonstrate their expertise is by shooting things down, is by pointing out all the ways something can't work. And by saying things like, oh, you know, I've worked in, you know, South Sudan and Somalia and Yemen, and, you know, uh, there's no way that you could possibly talk to uh, young women who are unmarried. No one will ever give you permission to do that. And it, it's a way of sort of playing devil's advocate that demonstrates the depth of their expertise. And, and we're all, we, we all succumb to that. That's a natural reaction. But I think a much harder work is to say, hey, we're all doing really hard work. What would it take to make it happen? So we know it's really hard to get access to young women who are not married because there are all sorts of cultural taboos. But what would it take to make it happen? What would we need to do in order to make it work? How do we make, you know, how do we make this fly? And I really like flipping that mindset because I don't find a devil's advocate approach to be particularly helpful. I am quite able to think of all the ways that I can fail by myself. Thank you very much. I would like some help with the harder work, which is what would it take to make it work? That was Carl Lopez, class of 1997. Special thanks for this episode goes to Jason Brzezinski and Megan Mallory for their help with producing this podcast. And thank you to Brian Morgan, class of 2007, and Maddie Norris, class of 2021, for writing and recording the theme music. If you have a classmate who you'd like to nominate for an appearance in the Berg's Eye View podcast, send a message to alumni at mercersburg.edu.